We have made normal the idea that there will be people who have no homes. I think deep down, we all know this is wrong. And we placate our consciences with all of the programs we have to help people like Mike. None of them accomplish what we need to accomplish. Fred's Front Porch Podcast is made possible by the generous support of Jenner Zeno of Studio Stargazer, Alex Oliphant, 2021's unofficial patron saint, Jean Louise Finch, our official patron saint, Coralie Day with Scott Knight, Edith Keeler, and listeners like you. Greetings, fellow traveler on this rock tumbling through space. I'm Fred. This is my front porch. Come on up, have a seat, and let's talk a while. There are ideas to be discussed on this old set of nicely nailed-together boards. Let's buy a little white house on the corner of nothing and nowhere. We'll grow tomatoes and drink mojitos on the front porch stairs. People with programs. People with programs is dangerous, Lily. People with programs don't care nothing about people. Lewis Coleman in I'll Fly Away. Have you ever been homeless? Doubt it. I have. You have no idea what that is like. To literally be at rock bottom on every standard. To have no hope of it getting better. Can't even apply for a job without going to a shelter. Where you are likely to get robbed. And even if you don't, you have to face the patronizing stares and the platitudes of the people saying they want to help. As long as you listen to this church service before we give you any food or let you get a shower. The shame of washing your genitals and armpits in a bathroom sink. The hunger. If you couldn't bum any change or get to a shelter in time, 
the disgusted looks, muttered words, the pity of the passerby. If they even bothered to acknowledge your presence. The people who shout, get a job, throw food at you, or commit acts of violence against you. The cops that you live in fear of constantly. Never being able to find a stable shelter outside of an actual homeless shelter because if you do, the cops will come and destroy it. Arrest you for vagrancy, rob you, beat you, or worse. Live like that for a few days, weeks, or months, and see if you don't jump at the chance to escape it even for a few minutes with drugs. I was able to escape because I had friends who reached out and helped me. Many who are homeless don't have that. Don't judge them for being in a situation that sucks more balls than anything you've ever experienced. And give them a dollar and don't care how they spend it, or shut the fuck up. Mike Hill, in response to a comment on Facebook, read and performed by Jenner's. We are living in an untenable situation. We have made normal the idea that there will be people who have no homes. I think deep down, we all know this is wrong. And we placate our consciences with all of the programs we have to help people like Mike. None of them accomplish what we need to accomplish. You can hear how simple it is to get unemployment in Arizona in my episode, You Call This a Government? It's from July of 2020. My last episode, Our Immoral Economy, covers the programs themselves in somewhat greater detail than I will tonight. I've never met Mike Hill. We're not even Facebook friends. I know nothing about him beyond this and a few other comments of his that I've read. But I'm going to make a few assumptions about him that seem reasonable to me. The first is that he can read. I make this assumption based on the fact that he responded to a comment from someone saying, you shouldn't give the homeless money, but you should give them food instead because otherwise they will just spend it on drugs. I also assume he can write. 
The evidence for this assumption is that he wrote a comment. These seem obvious, but they're important. They put Mike well ahead of many people in need of help. Four in five U.S. adults, 79%, have English literacy skills sufficient to complete tasks that require comparing and contrasting information, paraphrasing, or making low-level inferences. This translates into 43.0 million U.S. adults who possess low literacy skills. The link for that data is in the show notes. This means that nearly 20% of our population is highly unlikely to be able to make use of the programs that are available to them. Without even discussing the dubious values of the, of the programs, they are worthless if you can't get to them. And this applies to people born in the United States. The number of residents who are highly unlikely to be aware of these programs because they are functionally illiterate is much higher among those for whom English is not a first language. A person who is illiterate is much more likely to be in need of financial help. How many high-paying jobs are there that don't require basic reading and writing skills? There are certainly jobs that require less of it, but even an independent contractor who is a brilliant builder must be able to read and write to negotiate a deal with a client. If they can't, they must trust someone who can. What are we going to do to help these people? If someone is illiterate, does that mean they deserve to be homeless? Do the mentally ill who could never hope to fill out a form, deserve to shiver on cold winter streets or park benches? My conscience is not placated by this. Is yours? Okay, then let's continue with our investigation of the value of our welfare programs. Mike can read and write so he can certainly get access to the programs that will relieve him of the pain of homelessness. He's probably not mentally ill, but I don't know nearly enough to make that assumption. Applying in person at most offices is impossible due to COVID-19 restrictions. So next, he needs internet access. Where does he get that? Does he have a phone? 480-331-9822. You must certainly have opinions about what you hear on this show. My ideas are certainly open to debate. Are my ideas right? Are they wrong? Is there something I need to consider that hasn't occurred to me? Your voice is an important one. You're a member of this community, and your ideas are valid, whether or not I agree with them. I would love to hear from you. Call the show at 480-331-9822. That number again, 480-331-9822. 
and I will play your voicemail on the air. Please be polite, and let's remember, ideas are always open to attack. People never are. We don't call one another names here. We are a kind and intelligent community. We have different ideas, and we have different beliefs, but we respect one another. I won't answer the phone, no worries. It's the Google number. You'll hear a brief, pre-recorded greeting, and then you can leave your message. Your story matters. Your voice counts. Share it at 480-331-9822. The Fred's Front Porch Podcast comment line. If he does, there will certainly be people who say he doesn't deserve help. Does he have a computer? If he does, there will even be more people contesting his need for our assistance. Is there a library nearby that will help? If not, he is doomed to the hopelessness of homelessness. Let's assume he has all of those things. He reads, he writes, he has internet access. Now, all he has to do is apply for a program and he's good to go. Except, in Arizona, at least, the government website for homelessness assistance will immediately take you to a charity site. The government, evidently, has no programs of its own. The programs I've found are all temporary. Inevitably, they will get you a caseworker who will help you to fill out forms and wait. And wait. And wait. And every night you spend homeless is one more night where horrible things can happen. If you're a parent, the odds of keeping your children are small indeed. And then there is means testing. I had a Facebook friend, until she blocked me, who insisted that means testing was essential. She didn't want to give help to someone who didn't really need it. She was of the mind that says, I worked hard and I'm not supporting somebody who is lazy. That mindset is simply cruel. It fits with the obscenity that we have all been taught to take for granted. You must earn a living. That phrase is so common, you probably think nothing of it. You've heard it since you were a child. It's the first question you'll ask about a man who wants to date your daughter. What does he do to earn a living? Well, what's so terrible about that? It implies you're not entitled to live simply because you were born. Yes, you are. You don't have to do anything more than being the sperm that won the race to fertilize the egg to deserve to live. No one gets to determine your value. You exist, you deserve to live. You deserve a home, food, all the things you hear me list over and over on this show. Means testing is invariably doomed to failure. It will exclude some who need help, it will include those who are adept at scamming the system. 
It assumes there are those who don't deserve the means to survive. It assumes those who need the help know how to get it. It assumes that those who get help will be all right now that they've gotten it. None of those things is certain to be true. Mike points out that he was luckier than most people. He had the most valuable resource most of us will ever have. Friends. Friend, 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 friend. I understand that point very well. I would, at this very moment, be homeless if I didn't have them. And if I were among the homeless, I would be ignored, or loathed, or pitied, or feared. I wouldn't have a podcast for you to hear. I would not be respected at all by anyone. And when I think of fearing those who are less fortunate, I'm reminded of this short little Facebook post I wrote a couple of years ago about a homeless man who frightened me but redeemed my faith. It popped up in my Facebook memories this week, and I feel compelled to read it to you. I am always mindful of the fact that I owe a great many people favors and funds. They've often told me to pay it forward. Yesterday, I had the opportunity to do so. I stopped at Circle K after teaching my defensive driving class, and on my way out, a man asked if he could get a ride to the hospital to get his lady. Those were his words. He didn't look excessively dangerous, and he offered to put enough gas in my car to cover the trip. I know it can be unwise to let a stranger in your car, and with Uber drivers getting attacked so often, it was a tough call to make. But then, I remembered that so many of you have done so much for me. If I got myself killed, at least it was because I was living as I believe. I took the man to the hospital. He turned out to be a perfectly nice gentleman, and things were fine. My faith in humanity is intact. Those who have less are not always dangerous, are they? I may have used what you're about to hear in some of my previous work, but if I have, I can't find it, and it's relevant to our discussion tonight. 10 TR internet points to anyone who can tell me which episode featured this. This is an essay called The Spiral of Poverty. It's easy to blame the victims of poverty for their state. They're lazy. They don't manage money well enough. They should get a better job. Those things can be true. Some of them are true of my poverty. Sometimes it's something else. They get laid off. They retire. They change jobs. They have massive bills they hadn't anticipated. Their health declines. Any of these can cause poverty. And they are by no means the only causes. The causes are as numerous and varied as its victims. My own poverty is nowhere near as bad as that of most others. I have been fortunate in that I have never had to go without a home. I have never gone without food. 
I have always managed, even if only barely, to keep myself in the insulin I need in order to survive. But since I can speak only for myself, I will use my own experiences to explain the spiraling effects of poverty. I quit teaching in 2016 because I couldn't do it anymore. I had begun to hate myself because I thought that teaching students that reading is boring was immoral and thus began my self-contempt. There will be more on this in the next episode. Students whose eyes had once lit up with joy to start the next Sherlock Holmes story, to hear more of Shakespeare, to see if Rainsford could escape from General Zaroff, to see if Santiago could get his Marlin back to shore, became students whose eyes glazed over with torpor when we had to do close reading of empty and soulless works. They soon discovered the only reason to read is to pass a mindless test on a barely functional computer. I fought against it. My principal gave me horrible evaluations because I wasn't a, quote, team player. I wasn't tracking data. I wasn't updating the My Learning Plan website with, quote, artifacts to prove that I'm good. I was too busy trying to sneak in something to spark their imaginations. By my final year, all literature had been banned from my classroom. Near the end of my career, I was borrowing from money from places with neon signs just to make rent. I was working two jobs, and I had even found some roommates in order to reduce my expenses, but it just wasn't possible to keep up. Why? Teachers make good money, don't they? Uh, no, 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 no. And that was actually the beginning of my spiraling poverty. In 2005, my second marriage in Maine, where they pay teachers well, fell apart. My father was getting old, and I knew he wasn't going to be around much longer. I came back to Arizona to be with him while I could and I took a cut of roughly $12,000 a year to do that. If you consider that I taught another 12 years, that's $144,000. I flushed down the toilet. Was that the right decision? I believe it was. You can, however, tell me that my poverty was then my fault. I should have stayed in Maine where they paid me a better wage. You may be right. When I quit in 2016, I pulled the only retirement I had left. I had lost half of it in each of my two divorces, paid off the neon sign places, and I lived the life I had always wanted to live. I went several times to California to meet one of my heroes and see him perform. I took mom there a couple of times. I wrote a screenplay, I made videos, I slept. My depression was kept at bay and I looked forward to each new day. 
My contempt for myself, now that I wasn't doing anything I considered to be immoral, was lessening. You shouldn't have done that, Fred. You should have saved that money. That may be true. On the other hand, though I live in poverty now, I have memories of beautiful experiences I wasn't going to have any other way. No one can take that joy away from me. But once you're in poverty, it spirals. You get sick and miss work, so your paycheck is short. You have to make choices about what to skip paying. If it's your car payment, you've saved some money this month, but next month, you need to find twice as much. And of course, you have to pay the penalties. Next month, your problem is twice as bad. Your budget, when you can manage to wait, make it work at all, fits one car payment, not two. So, then, they repossess your car. You don't want to lose it again. So now, you have to buy the cheapest functional car you can. And you have to get it to pass emissions, which, because the car is so old, you can do only if you know a guy who knows a guy who can get the check engine light off long enough to get the guy he knows at emissions testing to look the other way. What is normally a $17 bill goes to $117. That's the price of poverty. It's spiraling. And now you begin to think of yourself as being worthless. You are beneath contempt because all too often you're begging for help. You beg from friends, from the government, from charities, and from churches. And you hate yourself for that. It's not what a person, particularly a man in our society, is supposed to do. Your friends are kind, and the government can be helpful if you jump through all the right hoops, and charities and churches can be nice too. But inside, you feel as though what you are doing is no way to live. You spent your life giving. Now you spend it taking. And that's contemptible. You're not earning a living. As I said, it spirals. So, when you see someone in poverty, you don't need to give them your sympathy or your money, but you should also try to avoid giving them your contempt. Trust me, we have plenty of that for ourselves, and it's not what any of us want. So, what can we do? I can do almost nothing. I hope someday I may have a few dollars I can donate to a cause that will help to end homelessness, but that will be removing an eyedropper of water from an ocean of need. What we can do is pass around the idea that everyone, and by this I mean everyone, everyone alive, should get a monthly living check. This is the money you have to keep yourself alive. 
I would recommend $2,000 a month. I don't know if that will be enough in all places, but it would be enough for me to live quietly and comfortably and hope no one ever bothers me. I know there are places in big cities where this amount won't even pay rent for a month. As it turns out, I'm not an economist. I really can't give you the details. I leave that to better minds than mine. But the goal of their work must be this. Everyone has enough to pay rent, eat, and have proper medical care. They have enough to clothe themselves decently. Or do you know someone who doesn't deserve clothing? Who would that be? Now, do we all need designer clothes? Fortunately, one of the few things about which I know less than economics is fashion. I don't know. Just give everyone something to wear to protect them from the elements and to avoid showing parts of themselves they may not wish to show. If I remove my eyedropper of water and you remove your thimbleful and your friend can remove, perhaps, an entire cupful? Well, it might make a little difference. No, it's not enough. It's not, it's not, not nearly enough. But it's still better to light one candle than to curse the darkness. Mine is burning here. I'll be happy to share my flame with you. And yes, of course, together, we can shine. I often refer to us as a small but hopeful community trying to change the world into a more just, kind, tolerant, and loving planet. I've observed that there are now more people on this list than there are in what Anchor estimates is my entire audience across all of the regular podcast apps. What does this mean? Well, information is helpful. It is a part of a good education, but it is only raw data until we learn from it. So I have to try to interpret this fact in the most helpful way. What brings this community together? We come from incredibly diverse backgrounds, but we share hope. I know almost all of you to a greater or lesser extent. Some of you are more liberal than I am. Some of you are staunch conservatives. Many of you are uncommitted in your political views. Many of you are theists of one form or another. Most of you, in fact, are. Some of you are atheists. Some of you are uncommitted to any particular religious views. Some of you are male. Some of you are female. Some of you are uncommitted about your gender. We are all different from each other. Each of us is unique. But I believe we all share our own versions of idealism. 
I believe we all believe in the power of love. We probably aren't all Huey Lewis fans, though. We walk many different paths, but we share a single destination, a better world. I find that to be beautiful. I love that we are such a welcoming group. I like to believe that we have all learned that there is no them. We are all us. We can and will and should disagree about many things. But we are, all of us, human beings who deserve, simply because we were born, a decent life and the ability to make our own choices. And from that odd concoction, we have created our front porch. So, these are the names of the people in our community. These are people to whom I am grateful, not only for their financial support, but for opening their minds to my ideas. You may reject them, but you consider them. And I'm honored to have the privilege of talking to you. Our patron saints are Alex Oliphant, who I don't know has ever heard a single episode of Fred's Front Porch, Jenner Zeno, and Jean Louise Finch. I am adding to this list David Russell, who is giving me a place to live, thereby actually keeping me alive. Thank you, David. I'm beyond grateful. And I don't know that David has ever heard an episode of this show either. Our producers are Edith Keeler and Coralie Day with Scott Knight. Our patrons are Sherlock the Mystery Patron, Utopia 42, Kevin Boyce, and Joe March. Our sponsors are Ken Wooten, Chris Donnelly, Corey Pluard, Claude Burt Lansden, Jesse Rogers, Virginia Rupert, The Mind Wave Podcast, to which you should listen often, Scott Shelby, Mark Rosema, Michelle Freeman, Laura Engram, Elizabeth Bennett, and Zareth. Our supporters are Judy Morris, Amos Stewart, who just joined us this week. Welcome, Amos. Phil Parkman, who is also a recent arrival. I'm honored to welcome. Thanks for helping me to shine, Phil. I know you know what I mean. Michelle Sylvester, Marley Maple Miracle, Ursula Phillips, Carrie Dedeo, Pavel Shabayo, Sarah Nimitz, John G., David Miller, Christine L. Patterson, Chuck Curry, Christopher Hitchens' friend, Corey, Natalie, and our tearless and tireless supporter, Jereen. Our anchor sponsor is Zara. Our anchor supporters are Lori Shea, Daniel H., Cindy Mandel, Corey again, Piper K. Young, 
A.A. A. Milne, John Donovan, Stacy Height, and Sharon Reddy, who also just recently joined us. Hi, Sharon. We're glad you're here. Thank you for sharing this journey with us. It is in the darkest skies that the stars shine most brightly. All of us will shine together. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll come visit the porch again soon. Until then, look for all the episodes on your favorite podcast app. We're on just about all of them now. Take care of yourself and each other. Produced by Studio Stargazer.